You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. Thanks for joining me on the podcast this week. This podcast is Lesson 5 of Known, a nine-week study on the Gospel of John. This week's session covers John chapters 8-10 through 10 and examines Jesus as the light of the world who exposes darkness and casts out the things that lurk within. This teaching corresponds with a homework found on page 27 of the Learner Workbook, available for download at leslieannjones.com slash known. This whole section where the woman caught in adultery and Jesus saying that he's the light of the world and then all that kind of arguments that ensue and healing the blind man and the good shepherd and all of that, at first glance they can kind of seem not related at all. Like what do all of these events have to do with one another? But in truth, they are all tied together um, with just one thread, and that is that Jesus comes into this world to expose truth, to reveal truth, and then he also comes in to offer grace and mercy to those who would receive it. And those are the connecting threads that throughout each of these stories, Jesus' description of himself and tries to explain and reveal his character to the people or who are listening changes. But the internal truth is the same in each one. And so that's what we're going to focus on as we go through these things. I know that in some of your Bibles, probably the beginning part of chapter 8 is, and mine is in like big double brackets. Does anybody have this note about how the first part of chapter 8 is not really part of the Bible? you got to know, like, hey, by the way, this might not actually be scripture. Okay, so we talked a little bit about this last time with just like one little verse about the manuscripts and the way that the Bible came to be in this form. So as believers, just a quick review, we proclaim that the Bible is 100% true, 100% accurate. It is inerrant. It is the inspired word of God in its original manuscripts. And the problem is, for us, that we don't have the original manuscripts. They were distributed among churches, and so they were passed around from place to place, and people made copies, and then there were copies of copies, and copies of copies of copies. And over time, little things got um, inserted or left out. Just, just think about it. Even if you're just rewriting a grocery list, how you can skip over one little thing. It's easy to make a mistake when you're handwriting something like that. Now, the good news is that for most of the New Testament, 99% of it is in agreement across all the manuscripts that we have. There's a tiny little 1% that varies in some places or another. The reason this section, this is like the biggest section that is in, in contest, okay? Most of the time it's just a word or two here or there. But this is a span of several verses that is not even present like, it's not there at all in a lot of the older manuscripts. And then it starts making an appearance and as you get a little bit further down the line and some of the ones that aren't quite as old, but it may not always be in this spot. Okay, sometimes it's in between John 7 and 8. Sometimes it's in Luke. It's kind of like floats around the New Testament depending on whose copy they were copying at the time. And then, even in the instances where it does appear, it's not always the exact same version. But, there are several references to this event in the writings of the early church fathers, 
they accepted it as something that actually happened, that it was a true story about Jesus. And so that's why it's included in our Bibles, even though it may not have been written by John the Apostle, who wrote the rest of the book that we're studying right now. The early church was in agreement that it was authentic and that it was true and that it showed us something important about Jesus's character. Since they thought it was such a big deal to include it, even though they weren't sure where it should go, I think that um, we should take a close look at it and start there. Let's start, I guess it's chapter 7, verse 53. We'll read and move on and talk through it. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, if you're caught in the act, I would assume that there needs to be another person for the act to be committed. I'm just saying, you can't be adulterous by yourself. Someone else has to be there. And so it's telling that they only drag her in front of him. Um, So maybe it was a setup. Who knows exactly what happens. But they only bring the woman. So they're already not following the law to its exact T. Because the law that you, um, I think it was in Deuteronomy that I had you look up, stated that both parties were subject to condemnation for the act. But they only brought one. So they're already not exactly following it. So, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Well, this is interesting because it doesn't seem like much of a test at first because the law is pretty cut and dry. If you're caught in the act of adultery, you should be stoned for it. I mean, it's harsh, yes, but it's really clear about the way it says. And and so the test wasn't necessarily about the application of the law. It was about the political situation at the time. Because Israel was under Roman rule, they were not allowed to decide capital cases. If Jesus had said she deserves to be killed for this sin, then the Jews could bring him before the Roman authorities and say, he is mounting a rebellion. He is an insurrectionist. And so they were really trying to trick him into making a bad situation for himself. But Jesus, in all of his wisdom, doesn't even answer them. He bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, like they won't let it go, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And this is where we see the first truth that I talked about. Jesus comes to expose sin. Let him who is without sin be the first stone, be the first to throw the stone at her. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were really, really good at pointing out the sins of other people. They would say, look at at her. She's a sinner. Look what she's done. But they did not like it if you turn the tables on them, them. They didn't like to admit that they were sinners. And yet, none of them could have cast the stone. They, could, they couldn't stand up in front of everybody and say they were perfect because they knew they weren't. So none of them could have cast the stone. The only one who could have cast the stone is Jesus. It was within Jesus' rights 
as the only one without sin to do it. And yet he doesn't. He could have, because that is what she deserved, and yet he offered her grace instead. He offered her a way out. He gave her a way to continue on. And as the people drifted away one by one, beginning with the older ones, I don't know why that's no notice in there, but maybe the older ones were wiser. I don't know. But the older people realized quickly that they couldn't get out of it, and they walked away, and then everyone else followed. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. He stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now, if you remember, in John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order to what? To save the world. I think this is a beautiful picture of that truth in action. This trip, this mission that Jesus is on now that's recorded in the gospel isn't to judge people. It is to offer grace. It's to offer a way out. It is to show them the way to be set free from this life of sin that they've been trapped in. Now, he is coming again, and that trip will be about judgment. But we're not going to be judged on whether or not we are sinful because it's a foregone conclusion we all are. Newsflash, we all fail on that account. So if we're not judged on our sinfulness, what are we judged on? We're judged based on how we respond to that grace and that faith. Do you surrender to that grace? Or do you say, no thanks, don't need that, I'm good on my own? He comes this time to offer grace, and that is what he's doing. Even if this story wasn't originally in the Gospel of John, it fits. It fits with the rest of it. And so as we go on in um, verse 12, he says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, let's talk about light and darkness for a few minutes. What kind of things like to grow in the dark? Mold, right? Nasty stuff. Or like under a rock. Have anybody ever like been clearing out your yard to plant some flowers or something and you have to move a big rock? What's stuck to the bottom of it usually? Creepy, crawly, nasty things. The kinds of things that like to live in the dark are not pleasant in general. <laughs> I'll go ahead and I am not the best at keeping up with cleaning. Just go ahead and say that. Our shower curtains are really gross. Really, really gross. I'm just saying, I'll go ahead and admit this for all of you. Last week, I had some time to clean since it was spring break, and that's what everybody wants to do when it's spring break, but I was home with the kids and couldn't do much else besides clean, and so that's what I did. And I'm trying to get the shower curtain clean because I didn't want to actually drive to the store and take the kids into the store and buy another shower curtain. I just wanted to, like, deal with this one. I'm Googling and looking on Pinterest how to clean a moldy shower curtain. Most of the people said that, like, if you were going to actually, like, get it clean, you needed to put it outside. Exposing things to the light keeps that kind of stuff from growing. It keeps that kind of stuff from happening. Jesus comes to expose the things 
that dwell in darkness, that kind of flourish and that thrive in darkness. And he makes this proclamation that he is the light of the world. He comes to shine light in all of the dark places. In the Bible, it is always a metaphor for sin. And sin and death and darkness, they're always kind of tied together. And so when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He's saying you will not walk in sin. You will not walk in death. You will have the light of life from now on. But the the people he's talking to, they don't even hear that. They say, so the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Like what? (laughs) He makes this proclamation about who he is and they don't even hear it because they're so stuck on what they think they know already. This is where we see a hard truth about Jesus and the gospel. He is always unapologetic in sharing the truth. He always, always, always tells the truth, even if the people he's talking to don't want to hear it. Later on, at the end of chapter 9, which we'll get to eventually, but it applies here. I think we need to go ahead and cover it. He says... In verse 39, I came that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. So he wants for those who are blind to be able to see. He wants to give light to those who are in the darkness. But he also wants the ones who think they are already in the light to understand that they are in the dark. It can sound really harsh. I came so that you wouldn't be able to see. But what he wants to say, I think, what he's trying to tell them is that I came so that you would be convicted of your sin, so that you would know everything that you don't know, so that you could be brought low and understand, knocked off your pedestal, so that you might have a chance of hearing me. And so he does these things, and, and throughout the course of these, all these chapters that we're going to talk about tonight, he is exposing their blind spots one by one. He's knocking them down. And the first one that he tackles is the idea of their false sense of righteousness, right? So they think that they are perfectly holy, that they have everything right, that they follow all the rules, they, they do what they're supposed to do. And look at this woman. She is a sinner, And they're pointing the finger the whole time at other people, and they don't even see the sin in their own lives. They are completely blind to their sin. And so Jesus comes to point out their sin to them, to let them know, hey, those people over there aren't the only ones with trouble. You are full of sin as well. And the problem is that they think that righteousness comes from following a set of rules. Because if you remember, the, the thing about the Pharisees is that they followed their rule followers, their rule makers. They want this list of right, and they want this list of wrong, and they're going to stay this path, and they're not going to stray from it because this is the way that you get to be holy. And if we continue on, um, as their conversation flows, they bring up Abraham, and they say, Abraham is our father, And the thing that they forget about Abraham is that he did not become righteous by following the law. The law didn't even exist when Abraham and God first made their covenant together. There was no law with Abraham. 
Abraham was declared righteous by God. He didn't earn it by following rules. He didn't earn it by being good. It was a gift from God because it says in Genesis 15, Genesis 15, 6, it says, He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was made righteous because of his faith, because he believed God. And so the Pharisees think that they're righteous because they have right behavior, but they have forgotten the most important part of their history. It's that Abraham is the father of Israel, not because necessarily he is the actual patriarch, which he was, but spiritually speaking, he is the father of faith. His legacy is one of faith. And that's why when Jesus talks to them and he says, they say, Abraham is our father. This is in chapter 8, verse 39. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. And then he goes on to say, and which I'm sure this is not a real crowd pleaser. Oh, by the way, your father is the devil. You are the devil's spawn. How do you think that went over? Nice, right? That's what everyone wants to hear. But his point is that he, Jesus, is standing before them proclaiming truth. He is shining the light in all the dark places, and they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. They are willfully covering their ears and shutting their eyes. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need your help. Um, when the girls, um, this is just all about my house cleaning today. But the girls have a playroom, and I intentionally do not look in it when I walk by. Like, I walk by, and I say, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look. Because as long as I don't know what is in there, I do not have to deal with it. But as soon as I look and I see, then it must be dealt with. Then we have to pull everything out. We have to sort through all the toys. We have to throw away all the junk. We have to make some hard decisions about what belongs in there and what does not. And that is what is happening to them. Jesus is saying, you've got it wrong. You got it all wrong. And they're saying, don't look, don't look, don't look. Because if they look, then they have to do the hard work of cleaning it out, of cleaning out their hearts, of deciding what belongs in there and what doesn't, of replacing the darkness and the things that they have allowed to grow up and spring up there with things of truth, with things that flourish in the light. And they don't want to do that hard work. And so they don't. But the thing that is most chilling to me about this whole situation is that when I look at them, I see us in a lot of ways. I see the culture, the Southern culture, the Bible Belt culture that we live in. When Jesus calls them out, when he says to them, if you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they're like, what are you talking about? We're not enslaved to anything. We've never been slaves. Well, except for that time in Egypt. And except for, like, right now while Rome is controlling us. But no, we've never been slaves. So what are you talking about? And then he continues on. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. This is verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And it reminds me so much of this culture that we live in because I can just imagine if it was our group, not necessarily this group because you are all nice, faithful women, but the culture at large that we live in that Jesus was talking to, I can just imagine people getting puffed up and saying, do you know who my father is? Excuse me, my daddy was a deacon or my grandmother was a founding member of this church. Do you know my legacy? And I think that there are so many people in our culture, in this church, in many churches in our area, that try to skate by on the faith of the people who came before them. They have been in church their whole lives, and so they call themselves a Christian, even if they have never been transformed by the gospel even if they have never come face to face with Jesus and allowed him to shine that light in all those places that they try to hide and then done the hard work of cleaning it out. But they think because I've always been in church, what are you talking about? Don't you know who you're talking to? That they are perfectly safe. And this is the thing that I love about Jesus, is that he keeps talking to them. Like, I would have shut down a long time ago on these people that he's talking to. And they kept, they kept not getting it. They kept not understanding. They kept saying, what do you mean by this? What do you, what, who is your father? Is he going to kill himself? What does he mean by this? And he it repeatedly says they don't understand. Or they pick up the stones to kill him. They decide they don't like what he's saying. And then they nitpick and they don't listen to the main points that he's trying to get across to them but he keeps talking he he goes here and he says i am the light of the world and they don't listen and by the end of it it says in verse 59 they picked up stones to throw at him which is always amazing to me that he slips away but jesus hid himself and went out of the temple so he's fine like they want to kill him but he just walks away because it's not his time yet They didn't quite catch on to the I am the light of the world speech. So he's like, how about a little object lesson? You didn't understand what I meant when I said that I would bring light in the darkness. So let's see what you make of this. There's a man who is blind. What if I give him light? What if I open his eyes so that he can see and I show you physically what I mean? Maybe that will convince you, does it? No. Let's read his story. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I just want to pause here real quick. The prevailing idea of that day was that if there was suffering or if there was profound sickness, it was because of sin. It was a direct result of sin. It was a judgment of God. And so even the disciples kind of buy into this. They just take it for granted that somebody sinned and that's why this man is blind. They don't say, hey, is he blind because of sin? 
they say, was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Which one was it? Like it's a foregone conclusion that somebody sinned. That's why the man is this way. And Jesus answers them, it was not that this man sinned. So I think a lot of times we kind of fall into the same boat, maybe without really realizing that we're doing it. Like if we go through a hard time, we think it might be a direct result of something that we have done, that God is somehow punishing us for something that happened in the past. We may not overtly say that, but we feel it sometimes. We can feel chastised and punished in a way. Now, that is not to say that there isn't consequences. There are consequences for sin. But just because there is suffering or something wrong happens doesn't mean that we are being judged for it. It doesn't mean that we are being punished for something that happened. So Jesus kind of refutes that idea. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had another plan for that man that he didn't know all those years he spent growing up. You might, like He had never seen anything. He was blind from birth. And Jesus comes along and he changes everything. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Let me show you how I'm the light of the world. So he takes some mud, which gross, by the way, rubs it on the man's eyes. I wonder what kind of conversation they were having when that happened. Because you kind of have to get up close and personal with someone to touch their eyes. He rubs the mud on him. He tells him to go and wash. And then um, the man goes and washes. He can see. He says, I went and washed and now I see. The man told me to do this. I did this and now I see. And the neighbors are confused because um, he has never noticed them walking by before. They have walked past him all their lives without him ever seeing them. And now he's like, hey, what's up? And they say, this can't possibly be that man. It just looks like him. That's not him. He's like, nope, it's me. I'm the guy. Same guy right here. It's interesting to me that when this happens, the immediate reaction isn't, oh, my goodness. How did this happen to you? Praise the Lord for this wonderful miracle he has done in your life. No, it's not that. It's the Pharisees, when they hear about it, the first thing they latch on to is that it was a Sabbath day. Again, here we are. Not, oh, a man can see, but it's the Sabbath day. And so, first of all, can't possibly be valid because anybody who was good wouldn't do anything on the Sabbath. So, eh, just kind of because of that. And then they're like, they're just making it up. It says in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. They did not believe his story. They say, whatever, you're just making that up. You just want some attention. Get over it. Tell the truth. That didn't really happen. And so they, they want to discredit him that way. And so they call on his parents. And his parents are kind of scaredy cats because they tell him, I mean, they do back up his story a little bit. They say, well, he was blind and now he can see. So, yes, this is our son. Yes, he has been blind forever. But now he sees. We don't know how it happened. Don't know. <laughs> don't Ask him. He's the one you need to talk to about that. Ask him. And so they call him forth again. And they're like, tell us what happened. Tell the truth. He says, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answers, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. 
one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And that is the point that Jesus is trying to get all of us to come to, to recognize our own blind spots and to give them over to him so that he might help us see. As long as you ignore the problem, as long as you refuse to see that there is an issue, then the issue will never be dealt with. We are all like the Pharisees in that way. Hopefully not to the same degree. But I know that in my own life, there have been times when God has called my attention to a particularly ugly part of my character that I did not want to admit was there. Whether it is pride or arrogance or a lack of love and compassion or a habit of gossip or a tendency to, um, you know, make less of others to push others down or, you know, whatever little thing it is that can just eat away at your heart. The truth is that we all have those areas. And I feel like in my own life, it's the same things over and over again. Does, I mean, does this anyone else or is it just me? And so I feel like I come to the spot where I'm like, again, God, really? Like, I thought we dealt with this. And he says, no, we're not done yet. There's some parts that you missed. We're going we're gonna to get this, and we're going to take care of it. And he's going to keep bringing it up, and he's going to keep pushing at it until it's gone. And that's what he's doing with them. With this man who was blind, he gives him sight, and Jesus is saying, I will do the same thing for you if you would just listen to me. If you would just believe that I am whom I say I am. If you would just believe that the Father sent me. If you would believe that I am the Messiah then I would do the same thing for you, but you can't see because you won't see. Have you ever dealt with somebody who refuses to admit that they are wrong? Every? <laughs> we don't know anybody like that, do we? I mean, stubbornness is a genuine trait in my family. We get it honest, and my poor children get it honest from both sides. Like, they don't stand a chance, and it is a real struggle to, um, <laughs> somebody's got to give at some point. You know, when you got two stubborn people butting heads, one side has to give. When it comes to our relationship with Jesus, though, he's not going to be the one that gives. He is steadfastly honest and steadfastly true, and ref he will not put away that light that he keeps trying to shine on our darkness he will not hide it, even if you wanted to. He will not allow you to come to him and to stay the same. You must be changed if you want to be his. This guy who used to be blind, he sees and he keeps telling them the truth. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already. And they say, do you, um, they reviled him. They made fun of him. They scorned him. They <laughs> acted like he didn't. He was good for nothing, nobody. What do you know? You know, you're just a no good beggar. 
You've been sitting on the streets begging your whole life. What do you know? We are students of Moses. You should listen to us. And he was like, that's the astonishing thing. You should see, but you don't. He says, we know, this is in verse, um, well, let's back up to verse 30. The man answered, why, this is amazing. And it's, it is, he is talking about the miracle, but he's also talking about the fact that they can't see it. What do you mean you can't see it? What do you mean you don't know where he came from? Have you ever met anybody else who heals the sick, who gives sight to the blind? Does anybody else have that kind of power apart from God? You, who are the religious leaders, should recognize the acts of God when you see them. But they don't. They look everywhere but at the miracle. They won't even talk about the actual miracle. They talk about all the facts surrounding it, but not what actually happened. Because if they admit that Jesus was able to give sight to the blind, that he was able to feed 5,000 people, or that he was able to heal the sick, if he was able to do any of those things, then they would completely lose their fitting footing, and life as they knew it would change. Their entire religious system was going to change. Their livelihoods, everything that they stood for, everything that they thought was true was going to change, and they couldn't afford to let go of it. And I wonder how many of us, how many people that we know or how many in our culture are the same way. It's not that they don't know or they don't see that maybe Jesus was real and maybe he was truthful and maybe he really was God. It's that they can't afford to admit it. They don't think they can because of what it would cost them. Because if we back back up to what Jesus tells them, in chapter 8, verse 31, the cost is high. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, all of these conversations he's having with them are people who were inclined to agree. And he says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so it's like he was telling them these things and they're following right along with them. They're like, okay. Yeah, all right, I'll give you that. That sounds good. And so they're still listening, and he's like, this is what it really means. The test of faith isn't in that initial belief, in that statement of, you know, words or that inclination to think that Jesus is real. It is in the abiding. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The test is in the abiding. And we have already talked about the way they responded to that. They didn't like that very much. And so he exposes the truth of their situation. They were, they only believed him up to a point. They didn't believe him up to the point where the word was going to change them. They didn't want that. They didn't want to go that far. They didn't want to believe to change their assumptions about what they already thought was true and to let truth be defined by the word instead of the other way around. They didn't want to hear any of that, and so they didn't. They refused to hear. So with the man that became blind, who and he didn't become blind, the man who was blind, 
who received his sight. He is the one who should have been blind, spiritually speaking, right? Like he had never studied the law of Moses because he couldn't see. You know, he may have heard them talking about it in the temple and stuff like that, but he was not a student of um, the ways of God in the same way that the Pharisees were. And yet he was able to see the truth of Jesus' identity. His physical sight led to spiritual sight for him because we get his confession later on in verse um, 35. Jesus comes and finds him because they throw him out. They can't have anybody following Jesus in in the temple. No, no, can't have that. And so Jesus comes to him and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And so his physical sight leads to spiritual sight. The, this miracle should have pointed to the truth of Jesus' identity, but it was only true for those who were willing to see it, who, who would look. Some, it goes on to say, Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. Can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. And one of the other gospels, he says, um, I have come to kill the sick. The healthy have no need of a physician. Right. And so he's not saying that they're healthy. He's saying they don't think they need help. And so they won't take my help. I'm here trying to give them help, but they won't take it because they don't think they need it. We don't know anybody like that. Right. Nobody at all. He goes on in in this next passage that we're talking about, the Good Shepherd passage in verse 10, in chapter 10. It is, I think, tied into the story before. It is part of the whole light of the world, um, exposing darkness, showing truth kind of thing. Because if you just read it, they didn't have, it wasn't originally written with, numbers chapters and verses and all that kind of stuff it was one continuous thing and later on people went in and made the chapter marks so if you just keep reading it flows together so let's start in verse 40 some of the pharisees near him heard these things and said to him are we also blind jesus said to them if you are blind you would have no guilt but now that you say we see your guilt remains truly truly i say to you He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. But they should have, because as he goes on and he says, he says that he's the door of the sheep, he is the good shepherd. Let's talk about some of the things that we know about shepherds in the Old Testament. That would have been their Bible. That would have been what they said they believed. So when you think of a shepherd in the Old Testament, what do you think of? Who is the shepherd? How about Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? So 
the Lord himself is the shepherd of Israel. And throughout the Old Testament, the priests, the religious leaders, are held up, described as sometimes shepherds of the people. They were shepherds of God's flock. They were supposed to care for the people in the way that um, a good shepherd would. And when Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, he is referring specifically to a passage that's in Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but the first half of it is this scathing indictment against the shepherds of Israel. Okay? It says, you have been a terrible shepherd for my people. You are the ones who are supposed to take care of them. You were supposed to lead them to me. You were supposed to make sure that everything was fine for them. And yet you have not done that. Okay? And that it says in chapter 34, verse... Verses 2 and 3, shepherds of Israel have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and with harshness you have ruled them. What have the Pharisees just done to one of the weak sheep of Israel, to that man who had been blind from birth. What did they do to him? They cast him out. They threw him out. And Jesus is saying, you're supposed to care for them, and you don't. I came. I have cared for them. And you're judging me? What have I done wrong? You're the ones who haven't done your job. So the first part of that Ezekiel 4 passage is this, just blistering indictment against them. But then the second half of Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Jesus comes to bring what? Light. So he comes in the midst of that thick darkness and he brings the light. He says in verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them out from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And continues on in verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And so he's saying, this is me. That shepherd that you've been hoping would come and rescue you from Rome, it's me, but you're the bad ones. I'm rescuing the sheep from you. You are the shepherds who have been doing wrong. You, the religious leaders of the day, you should have been doing this, but you have not. They are the hired hands who run away when the wolf comes because they, the sheep aren't theirs. They're just doing it for the pay. 
But what does the good shepherd do? He says, I am the good shepherd, verse 11. And the very first thing he says about the good shepherd is that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who is willing to die for a sheep in this room? Anyone? Who counts the life and the value of a sheep as more important than the value of your own life? Only Jesus. And that's why he is the good shepherd. He says, I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Nothing that happens to Jesus in his entire earthly life is a surprise to him. The cross has been in view for him for all eternity. They may think that they are in charge and that they are going to do something about this Jesus problem. But he says that he lays down his life. It was not taken from him. It was not an accident. It was voluntary. He did it because he loves the sheep. And he says that he is the only way. He is the way in and the way out. If you want to be a part of this flock, you must come through me. You must follow me. I am the door of the sheep. I am the shepherd. He is everything. You must be in me. You must be with me. You must follow me all the days of your life. That is what it means to be a sheep, is to follow the shepherd. And see, they weren't willing to follow anyone. It says there was again a division. Jesus divides. He, everyone he talks to makes that choice whether they want to run to the light or be repelled by it. You know, they you either... Go to the light so you can live in that and you can flourish in that or you run and you hide in the darkness because you don't want to deal with everything that the light might expose. And Jesus tells them this is the way it is. And so he divides. Some think he has a demon and some say, no, he is not acting demon possessed. (laughs) Did you notice that thing back there where that man can see? Did, Did you see that? And so some see and others don't. And then it continues on in this last section um, that we'll talk about tonight very quickly. It says in verse 22, at that time the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. So we've moved on. We're a few months past that feast of booths. So all of these events have kind of unfolded over the course of these months, I guess. The feast of booths was a harvest time festival. Um, The feast of dedication is also known as Hanukkah these days. So what is the most um, vivid, the most famous, I guess, symbol of Hanukkah that you know of? The lights, the menorah, that's right. The menorah is the candelabra that they, the Jewish people use even today. And it's a, also known as the Festival of Light. Okay. The reason that the menorah is the symbol for Hanukkah is that the feast celebrated, it's, it's not in the Old Testament because the events that it celebrates happen 
in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It happened in the 2nd century B.C., so a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, before this. Um, the Jewish people were under the control of yet another country, and it was really bad. Like, the ruler of that country took over the temple, made altars to Zeus, Jupiter, in, like, the temple, sacrificed pigs in the temple. Are pigs a clean animal in the Old Testament? Nah, they were unclean. And so this ruler defiled the temple in unspeakable ways. And there were some, there was a family of Jews who rose up in revolt and um, basically cast them out. They were the Maccabees, was the family name. And this period is known as the Maccabean period. And they actually took back Israel from foreign control for a while. But Hanukkah celebrates the cleansing of the temple after it had been defiled. And the story of Hanukkah is that they had to um, light the lantern, the lamp, and they only had enough oil for it to last one night. But that somehow the oil kept burning for the entire eight days of the cleansing. And so that's why these days the menorah has eight branches, all that stuff. That's why it is that way. And so <clears throat> this ceremony, this festival is a celebration of light. We've been talking about Jesus as the light of the world. He comes to bring light into the darkness. And these people were remembering a time when they had risen up against their oppressors, when they had um, rid themselves of foreign rule. They're celebrating that. And so they look to Jesus and they ask him again, are you the Messiah? Tell us point blank, are you the Messiah? And he says to them, I've been telling you this all along and you're not listening to me. I have told you and I have told you and I have told you and you won't hear me. And finally he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one and they can't take it anymore. They pick up stones to throw him and he says to them, I have shown you many good works. If you don't like what I have to say, sorry, but it's the truth. But if you don't like my words, you should at least listen to the testimony that my works do. Listen to what all of these miracles are proclaiming about me. They are evidence that my words are true. I just told you that I and the Father are one. Only God can do these things. This is evidence of my identity. And yet they still would not listen. It says they sought to arrest him in verse 39, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. Many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This section is the end, I guess, of Jesus's public ministry. For the past few weeks, we've been dealing with a lot of public speeches of Jesus, of those who were in opposition to him and in defense of his ministry, in defense of his identity. But from here on out, it's going to change. We're going we're to take a turn. And so next week, we'll talk about the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. That's his last great sign that he does before his trial. Um, you have the anointing at Bethany where Mary pours out the oil on him and honors him. You have the upper room scenes where he talks to his disciples. It's family talk now. 
and the tone changes from all this confrontation and all this defending truth to um, words of wisdom and instruction for believers for how we are to live. And then there is, of course, the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection and all of that, which we will get to in those days leading up to Easter. I think for us, um, when we come to passages like this and look at them, um, we would be remiss if we didn't wonder how it applies to us. You know, we are not the Pharisees, but I think sometimes we can act like them. So, as far as application goes, I think there's three things for us that are important to take away from this. Um, First, we can pray for God to shine His light on the dark places that lurk within us. The hidden aspects of our character that aren't so pretty or those secret sins that need to be dealt with. Um, We should not be content to stay the way we are because Jesus wants more for us than that. He demands more than that. And so first we should pray um, that God would open our eyes to see, that he would give us the spiritual sight to recognize our sin and recognize our need and to deal with that. The second thing is that we can repent after he has shown us and to repent and then abide in the word, to be in his word daily so that it can change us. This is not just a book. It is the living word of God. It has the power to transform. It has the power to heal. It has the power to give us truth. But it can't do any of that if we don't read it. And so if you would follow Jesus and allow him to transform those dark places, we must abide in the word so that after you've done the hard work of cleaning out that darkness, of dealing with those sins and dealing with those areas, your own blind spots that plague you, so that in its place, this can take root. So that where something ugly and nasty and yucky was hiding, something beautiful can take root and flourish instead. But you've got to do that hard work of cleaning it out first. And then the last thing for us is to um, to be like the man who received his sight, to give thanks and to worship, to recognize that he is our only hope, to thank him for shining that light, to um, be grateful for the compassion that he has shown us, to accept the grace that he has given us, and, and to be mindful of that, to never take it for granted but to always um, treat it as the gift that it is and and to be the kind of people who are not afraid to be the light in the dark places.